Mars Me Too moment, spoken by Pastor Megan Gillen. Woo! Good morning, Metro! It's such an honor and a privilege to be here with you. And I'm guessing that you may not all be aware what a wonderful place this is and how blessed you are to have Pastor Peter on, one of the many famous Korean Peters of the Covenant Church. (laughs) But maybe the coolest one, maybe the coolest one, I don't know. And this beautiful staff that you have assembled who care so deeply for you and work so hard on your behalf to bring exactly what is needed as best as they can discern it from the power of the Holy Spirit. I am so grateful to be here with you. So, let's get down to business, shall we? We are here today to speak about this sensitive issue of sexual abuse. We are going to look deeply into the word of God, and some of you may be bristling a little right now as I said that, going, oh man, that's not what I came to church for. (laughs) And I want to just speak to that issue right now. First of all, the story that we are going to work with today is in the word of God. God allowed it to remain in the canon. And so we must be unafraid. We must be like theologian Francois Mauriac who says we must see life steadily as followers of Jesus and see it whole. Not just pick and choose the things we're gonna like and run after, but see the whole of scripture to speak to the whole of life. I want to issue what we traditionally call a trigger alert that for those in the room and in a room this big, there are many women and men, and potentially teenagers who, well, although I think your teens are elsewhere, aren't they? Who have experienced some form of abuse. And if this is your story, I want to encourage you to hang in today. But if at any moment you feel like, this is getting a little too dark for me, a little too heavy, my heart is beginning to feel that kind of triggering of re-entering what happened to me, please feel free to care for yourself and step away, step out through one of the doors, whatever you need to do. But I will say this, research shows very clearly and we know the pathway of discipleship requires that we look at life. We look at our lives fearlessly, shamelessly, And the more we move toward our damage, our woundedness and our pain, the better opportunity we have for healing, for growth and restoration. So that's what we're about today and that is my goal. My goal is not to leave you feeling sad and discouraged. My goal is to encourage you in Jesus Christ that healing is possible, that helping is possible, and that actually, as the beloved community of Jesus, that's what we're called to do. All right, so let's jump in. I do need to give you a few uh, definitions, and I wanna be sure that you have those. And actually, unless you've been under a rock somewhere, you know, following this incredible cultural moment that we have had this Me Too movement that has arisen across not only the United States, but over 85 countries in the world. And the Me Too moment has simply given voice to people who previously didn't have voice. Now I know it's difficult because primarily it's women finding their voice and speaking up. We're not here to bash men today. We're here to encourage the body of Christ to be who God calls us to. 
But this uh, Me Too movement has given people the opportunity to speak their truth and speak up and find their voice because you see, those of us who've been abused, sometimes we have trouble finding our voice because it was squashed, it was, uh, uh, it was put down, it was held back and to find our voice and finally have freedom to speak up, that's helpful. When our voices are heard, we regain the power that was taken in the abusive act. When we remain silent, we live with secrets that continue to hold power and sway over us for years and sometimes for decades. So let me quickly give you some definitions and then we'll get to the scripture and we'll see what we can learn from it, okay? Are you good to go? Are you willing? Oh, thank you. (laughs) You probably said yes even if you didn't mean it. Thanks a lot for that. That's what we do in church, right? So we're talking about harassment and primarily abuse, but let's talk about harassment very briefly. Sexual harassment includes any unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, verbal or physical conduct, or communication of a sexual nature. It includes sexist remarks, unwelcomed flirtation. I know that's tricky. Inappropriate observations, put-downs, or conversational innuendo or implication, as well as any unwanted, is the key word, verbal, visual, or physical suggestion that is inappropriate. Sexual harassment is never okay. And we'll talk a little more about why. But abuse, that's a little more complex and it has a lot more faces to it. Abuse is a systematic pattern of behaviors in a relationship that is used to gain or maintain power and control by one person over another. So friends, if you take nothing else away from today, please remember those two words, power and control. That's what's happening in abuse. So you may be in a weird place, in a relationship, and you may be struggling with some awkwardness, but if there isn't power and control functioning, you can work it through. If there's power and control, you are being abused or you are abusing, and I ask you to push pause on your life or your relationship and ask what is happening. It can include intimidation, fear, humiliation, degradation, stalking, agitation, disorientation, or all kinds of forms of emotional distress. And of course, as well as the forcing of any unwanted sexual behavior. Again, abuse is a systematic pattern. So we watch for a pattern of behavior that seeks to dominate and and control its victim. Okay? I hope you get the picture here, all right? Let's remember power and control. Why is this important today? We know from the book of Genesis, uh, chapter one, verse 27, that the scripture tells us that God created us. That means you and me, that means everyone in this greater region, that means everyone on the face of the earth. God created in the image and likeness of himself. And God said that was a good thing. He made us to be like him, to reflect his image. We're image bearers. That's a burden. I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. In the Latin, we call it that the imago Dei, the image of God. We carry that within us. And it's what makes us like God with the capacity for love, 
for joy, for communication, for creativity, all the things that God is, including even jealousy, God says he is jealous, he says. All those things, that's the imago dei that we bear within us. And the horrendous thing about abuse is that it crushes the imago dei within us. It destroys that image of God, maybe bit by bit or maybe in one fell swoop, but when that image of God is crushed and broken, for those of us who've experienced that, then we begin a journey of healing, of recapturing, of reclaiming that image of God so we can experience the abundant, full life that Jesus says he actually wants for us in John 10.10. I've come that they might have life and have it to the full, that every human on the face of the planet might flourish and enjoy their life. That's what God wants for us. And yet abuse just takes that flourishing and robs and steals it from the person who has been abused and then he or she begins a journey of recapturing it. It crushes the very image of God within us. The interesting thing about the Me Too movement is it's it's something new, but friends, we know it is not new, is it? We know that this word, this thing has been in the humankind from the beginning of creation, that all cultures and all societies pretty much experience abuse and harassment and violation. One of the few universal taboos in the world is incest. And yet today, we are saying that icky word and we are looking at that horrendous problem because it's in the Bible. It's in the word of God. So we are talking today about the rape of Tamar. And I'm sorry to use that word. I feel a little twinge in my spirit even using the word rape. And I know there are women in this room and potentially men in this room who have been raped. And so I want you to know we use that word with caution. But we also use it because it's real and it's what we read about in the scripture and it's where we're going today. Okay, so let's get a little bit of context here. The story is set in the royal household of King David. King David who wrote so many of the Psalms. King David who is a man after God's own heart. King David who is exemplary in so many ways. And yet, as we will see today, is a human being as well with feet of clay. King David who allowed things to go on in his household that should not have happened. And we give him grace the same way that we give each other grace. But this is a difficult story. All right, we have a few characters. I wanna be sure you know who we're talking about. So of course we have the king, and he has two sons. One is in this story. One is named Amnon, and he is King David's son by a different woman from Absalom, and then our protagonist today, Tamar. So Absalom and Tamar, they're full siblings, Amnon is a half-sibling to both Absalom and Tamar. Got that? Not that that matters at all. It's still incest, okay? But we're getting the relationships here. Then there's a cousin named Jonadab who enters in briefly, and he is related through David's family, and he is uh, apparently a pretty close friend of Amnon. So let's jump in to the scripture. And I'm old school, so I'm gonna read it from my Bible. And I think it's on the screen, right? Yeah. Second Samuel 13, verses one through 21. 
Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar, he became ill. I think they call that lovesick in modern romance novels. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother Shimeah. One day Jonadab said to Amnon, what's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister, and I have to pause here and note, Amnon can't say I'm in love with my sister. He has to remove it one step to somehow make it more appropriate, to somehow rationalize in his mind that this lust that he is harboring and nurturing is really not that bad. But he's mistaken, isn't he? He is mistaken. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do, friend. Go back to bed and pretend that you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. You see, Tamar is a protected virgin princess in the royal household. No one is allowed to court her, to date her, and she really has kind of this layer of protection around her. And yet, Jonadab and Amnon come up with actually kind of a mini crisis here. Amnon's gonna get sick and everybody's gotta come to his aid. It's kind of a mini crisis to break down the natural barriers, the family barriers, the boundaries that are there to protect her, they're going to be broken. We need to watch out for broken boundaries, friend, when they get softened and when they start to fall down. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel much better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. Deception. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, please, let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. And so David agreed. And he sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. When she baked his favorite, then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, he told his servants. And so they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, brother, she cried, don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Where could I go in my shame? And you, you would be called one of the greatest fools in all of Israel, please. Just speak 
to the king about it and he will let you marry me? But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried, sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. Now she was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, Keep quiet for now. Since he's your brother, don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. This is the word of the Lord. Amazingly, right? This is a painful story, is it not, friends? It's hard to hear. But let's work our way through it and draw the curtain back on this broken family system. I know we love to hold David up, but he's just like every one of us. He's got his good moments and he's got his bad ones, right? And we would prefer that the world not see us on our worst days, right? As we are looking at David and and his household on one of their worst days. We start with Amnon, he is obsessed. He wants what he cannot have. And with Tamar being this pure, beautiful young woman, there would be an absolute prohibition against anyone touching her or courting her. And Amnon thinks, I want what I can't have. I want what I can't have. And I'm guessing that there's some of us in this room who often find that same emotion welling up inside of us. It may not be sexual, it might be, but it might be that car that you can't afford. It might be that vacation that your neighbor took that you just wish you could take. And you make bad choices and bad decisions just to get it. He wants what he can't have and he becomes obsessed. So friends, my first takeaway for you is let's watch our obsessions. Let's watch what we find ourselves thinking about over and over. See, I think that this obsession that Amnon has, it's like the ancient version of pornography. He did not have photography. He did not have pornography that at least was visual. But I think he created it in his mind. I think he pictured his precious princess of a sister and what he would do. And I know because there was pornography in the home where I grew up that that's really what pornography is trying to do. And so I know this is making some of you uncomfortable but I wanna call out anyone who is struggling with that issue today. It will not lead you down a righteous path. It will not take you to the place you wanna be as a follower of Jesus. But it's alluring, isn't it? It gets in that part of our brain 
that causes us to want more and more. So uh, this is not a sermon on pornography, but I think the obsession that Amnon has here is kind of like that. He's rehearsing it in her mind. And I am so sad that he wants to, as the scripture says, do something to her. He is talking about taking and not about giving. But friends, we know as followers of Jesus Christ that marriage, love, relationship, and certainly sexual intercourse is about giving. It's about being one together in a holy, sacred, and actually a mysterious union. That is not what is on Amnon's mind. Because abuse is about the abuser and their selfish selfish obsession and desire to control. Well, the next character to enter the story is Jonadab, the cousin, right? And it says that he is crafty. I am here today to tell you that that word crafty is the same word that's used about the serpent in the garden, crafty. Telling lies that sound like truth. Taking evil and making it sound good. That's what Jonadab is about. So he actually concocts this plan. And of course, Amnon says, oh great, what a good idea. Let's make a little crisis here in the king's household. And I'm so disappointed in cousin Jonadab. And friends, we all know that there are moments, often, when we have the opportunity to help bring out the best in a friend or a follower of Christ, someone in our small group, someone in our family, and Jonadab has that opportunity and he goes the opposite direction, doesn't he? See, I want Jonadab to say, dude, what have you been thinking about? Let's saddle up our chariots and go for a race or something. Let's get your mind off of this. You are going down a bad path. But no, he's crafty and he's evil and that's what he does. He does not say, knock it off. The next character to enter is the king. He's been summoned. His son is sick. Uh, He needs, needs to pay him a visit and find out what's going on. Apparently, he didn't have a fever thermometer with him like mothers do to check, are you really sick or are you just pretending, kiddo? David comes and he listens and and this is such a sad moment that he's complicit. And we can't lose that, that it is David who dispatches Tamar and says, yes, I guess she'll go. He's not paying attention to what's going on, is he? And it's heartbreaking that this happens. See, abuse needs people to step up and speak the truth. It happens in the darkness. And Jesus calls us to shine the light. So we need to step up and speak the truth, to boldly speak out. Even when it's difficult, we need to shine a light. We need to be the people who can do that. And I'm just sad for King David that he was not capable of doing that in this moment. I wanna offer one other interpretive comment. When the scripture says to make my favorite food, some versions and even the King James uh, says something about cakes. And actually in the, the Hebrew word for this kind of food is very obscure. And some scholars actually think it's something called heart cakes, you know, like this. Heart cakes that actually have kind of a prurient sexual um, seductive overtone. The like if, you know, your, your spouse and you, you're getting away for a nice romantic weekend, you might go to the bakery and buy some heart cakes and take them with you to kind of say, ooh, this is gonna be a lovely time together. Well, that's not the kind of love 
that we're talking about here, but the heart cakes potentially are symbolic of that. It's a food which would be known to have erotic connotations. So David might even have let that be his first clue of what's going on. David agrees, and Tamar comes, and then we have this whole mashup of she's making the food, he drives her away, she brings it to him, he says no, then he clears the room, right? And so the next takeaway I have for us, friends, is the absolute volatility and the danger of isolation. Because she was alone now. She's alone with the person who is going to do something bad to her. And when we are in community, we have the opportunity to hold one another accountable and to be present. I've been doing some preparation for this weekend and I've read about uh, the stories of some young women who have been raped, either date raped or raped by acquaintances. And in many, many cases, there are friends at the party, friends in the situation, who could stay with and who could help and who could prevent that isolation, and yet they don't. Can we be the friends who will go with and travel with potential victims or people who have been victims, victimized? We need to. And so, we have the next turn in the story. She brings the food, he sends the servants away, And he says, come into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar did that. And as she was feeding him, still perhaps a little bit naive, huh? Perhaps a little bit naive, like what's going on here? I'm alone with my brother. Well, she ought to feel safe. She knows he's part of the household. She knows that he understands the prohibitions. And yet, suddenly it's all about to change. He says, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. Interesting, this phrase is the same one that's used in the situation with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Only it's Potiphar's wife who says, come to bed with me, darling Joseph. See, seduction is all through the scriptures, really. Sadly. But Tamar is not complicit. She is not giving in to this guy because she knows how wrong this is before God, before the royal household, before everything that's been ingrained in her, and she says, no! The shame that this would bring on me, on our family, this, we would never recover from this, you can't do this. And by the way, brother, you would be the biggest fool in all of Israel, do you really want that? Amnon can't hear that. He is driven now to a point where he has decided nothing is stopping me and I am not turning back and there are no witnesses in this room so I can do as I please. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel, says Tamar. Where could I go with my shame? And you, you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. And then, bless her heart, she proposes an appropriate solution that no doubt would be really unpleasant for her but she is willing for the sake of the family, for the sake of family honor, for the sake of the word of God, and for the sake of the king. She says, just speak to the king. He'll let you marry me. But no, that would require Amnon deferring. 
this gratification that he's decided he's getting. He didn't listen. But Amnon would not listen to her, and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. And suddenly, Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled. And how often do we find that? That when we have that obsession, that lust, that passion, that drive, that we get the very thing that it is we've been wanting. Oh, it may not be sexual, it may be material, it may be some other thing. It might even be a job or a career status. When we get it, the satisfaction we thought was going to be there is not there because we don't need to fill ourselves with things like that. All we need to do is be responsive and faithful and help and honoring of God. I don't know that it's really hatred that he's feeling as much as it could be self-loathing because we know that most addictions that we experience at some point we hate ourselves, don't we? That we're caught in this. And I think that is probably part of what is going on with Amnon at this point. When he sends her out, he's, the scripture says he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away would be worse than what you have already done to me. She knows that now her culture says she is damaged goods. I am so sorry to use that term because friends in the room who have experienced abuse, you may be damaged, but you are not condemned to being damaged goods for the rest of your life. You may be dealing with some mess, but you are not a mess, all right? But she is damaged goods and she's announcing to her brother, Amnon, this is gonna ruin my life, what you're doing to me. If you send me away now, if you cast me out of this household now, I'm, I'm a goner, I'm done. But Amnon wouldn't listen again. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. He is done. He wants nothing more to do with her. And so the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. You know, there's this moment, if we were to fictionalize this, that we would want to see the servant at least question her or his activity. We'd want to see that servant at least say, I wonder if there's a secret passageway. I wonder if there's some way I could protect. But of course, there's a obedience. And so the servant complies. Not even a household servant will help Tamar in this horrendous moment. And she was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. Do you know the word for this robe is the same word used for Joseph's coat of many colors? It's the same thing. It shows honor, it shows dignity, it shows respect, it shows special standing in the family, in the household. And she wears this robe with great pride, but now the pride is gone, it is destroyed, it is torn to pieces, and she shreds her robe and says, I don't deserve this anymore, I have lost my status as a beloved, precious princess in the royal household. And if she does, of course, a very traditional Hebrew thing to throw ashes on her head, and then we all, female and male, understand that experience of head in hands. Something more horrendous than I ever could have imagined has happened, and I don't know how to cope with it. 
she put her face in her hands and went away crying. News travels fast in the royal household. Her brother Absalom says, have you been with Amnon? Has Amnon been with you? How did he know that so quickly? Who's spreading the word? Who's got the gossip going in the royal household? But he knows and he comes to his sister and says, has this really happened? And then friends, if I'd say take away number two, if you only take away those words power and control and you take away this principle, please never say to a victim or a survivor of any kind of abuse what Amnon says to Tamar. They're there. Don't worry about it. Don't talk about it. Don't deal with it. Put it away. Keep quiet for now, sister. He's your brother. And he probably is leaving unsaid. This act has brought shame to the family. But we also know, <laughs> we also know that Absalom is hatching a plot. And he, in a very short time, will host a sheep shearing party and command his servants to murder his half-brother Amnon. See, sin begets sin, doesn't it? And it compounds itself. And I really don't wanna like, talk to you guys today so harshly about the power of sin, but we must look at the power of sin. We must examine and say, oh my goodness, this is horrendous. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And then we get the footnote from King David. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about it, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. I am troubled by that one verse about David. He heard what had happened, he was angry. What was he angry about? Who was he angry with? Was he angry that shame had come to the family? Was he angry that his princess daughter had been devastated? I don't know. Anybody thinking here about the previous experience in David's life in the narrative of 2 Samuel? What has just happened to David is that he's been called out by the prophet Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And so church, I think, What's going on here is David is preoccupied. He did not deal with his sin. We know he wrote that Psalm 51, confessing, you know, blot out my sin, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. It's a beautiful Psalm, but I don't know when it actually happened. It just says it was after Nathan confronted him. Did David do this? Did he write that Psalm? Not after Nathan called him out, but after this happened and he saw the destruction and the compounding of sin that was happening in his life. I'm not sure, but I do think <laughs> that David was preoccupied. And friends, he was not minding the store of his family. So I'm speaking to us as parents today. I'm speaking to us as members of the beloved community of Jesus Christ. We need to mind the store. We need to watch what's going on right under our noses. We need to be like my kids used to call me, a freaking detective. <laughs> we need to be careful and thoughtful and examining the things going on in, our, in the lives of the people we love and that are closest to us. 
we do have the opportunity to stand with one another. We do have the opportunity to prevent sin before it happens. I'm not saying we all gotta be watchdogs and all be up in each other's stuff. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about moms and dads. Not only being freaking detectives, but taking from the youngest age with your children the opportunity to talk in healthy and wholesome and sweet ways about what respect is, respecting one another, respecting one's body, telling children who may touch them and who may not, where they may be touched and where they may not. Sensitive, I know. But depending on your family of origin, you may or may not be able to do that. And so today I just want to encourage you to lean into that. I want to encourage you to see it as your responsibility. I want to encourage you to keep short accounts with your sin and not be like David, who was so preoccupied. See, this is my story. My parents, my mom and my dad, they met during World War II and were, came home married from the war. And like most World War II vets, they didn't do anything about the, the pain and the damage and the horrendous things they experienced. They came home and rebuilt suburbia, right? And my dad, he was very busy climbing the corporate ladder and he became a very high-functioning alcoholic. And I'm thankful that he wasn't the kind of alcoholic who got nasty or uh, contentious or who beat us or did anything else, but he provided a different kind of abuse. He was simply absent when I needed him. See, I think he never dealt with all the pain that he saw during the war. And so in some of the biggest moments of my life, my 16th birthday, my graduation from college, my wedding, those are all deep memories for me that my dad was there, but he was drunk. And everybody just sort of tolerated old Warren because we love him. And at, when there were parties happening at our house, dad wouldn't get crazy, wouldn't put a lampshade on his head, he'd just go to bed. But the reality is he was preoccupied and he did not mind the store. And my brother Jim, I don't know why and I don't know how, but he came obsessed with prurient things. There was pornography in the home. You know, it was kind of the Mad Men era when rising business executives would have a little playboy under the bed and maybe the sons found it and my brothers actually went on to more hardcore pornography. And I was exposed to that at a very young age. That was damaging. And Jim became my abuser for many, many years from age three or four, I'm not sure when until teenage years. And a lot of bad things happened in our family of origin. We looked so good to the outside. We were dressed nicely. We had a very prestigious country club membership. We went to eat dinner in places that were lovely. But inside, we were so broken and things were so chaotic. And it took me a long time to figure this all out that every family didn't scream and yell at each other. Every family didn't have siblings who came into their bedroom at night. Every family didn't have those things going on. It wasn't until I grew and developed that I learned these things weren't right. And I just wanna give the message today that that is my story. That is the story of many in the room here. And I'm just thankful to God that there is healing, there is hope, and there is help. Tamar actually never got her Me Too moment. We don't know what happened to her. But church, we can do this. We can provide safe space for people to talk. We can acknowledge that this is real and we can talk about it more often rather than less often. Even though it's difficult, every time we talk about it, healing can happen.
okay? And don't worry, I'm pretty confident this church is not gonna become the sexual abuse church. I'm pretty sure that's not gonna happen. This church is the emotionally healthy church. This church is the church who wants people to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, and so I am confident. You can trust your pastors to navigate this one well, but they need you. They need you to step up and say, we will be healthy in this way too. We will train up our children to know how to respect one another. We will train up our children to respect their bodies. We will teach our teenagers what it means to be abusive and what it means to be caring and supportive. And we will mind the store of our households and our families so that bad things and abusive things do not happen. I am stunned at how beautifully you as a church have prepared for this weekend and I am thankful to God. And so I'm just gonna invite you right now to pray with me. Knowing that there are those here who have experienced abuse, violence, violation, emotional abuse, maybe verbal abuse, mistreatment, bullying, and worse. And knowing that there are those who have perpetrated that on others. God views the abuser with the same love and compassion that he views the victim. And the image of God needs to be restored in abuser and victim, survivor alike. And so today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ask that you will come with power. And Lord, I ask that you would reach out and reach into this congregation and speak to us. For those for whom this is their story, Lord, let this be one more step on the journey. Let us experience freedom and release in Jesus Christ. Let us have courage and bravery to incorporate into our identities. Yes, I was abused. I have been abused. I am being abused. I am being hit. I am being mistreated. Whatever it is, God, give us courage to speak that and understand ourselves in light of that that we are still loved by you. For those, Lord, who have perhaps abused, misused their authority or their relationships, Lord, I pray that you would set them and us on a path of repentance, on a path of coming to terms with what it is that is done and taking responsibility for it. And as the time is right, Lord, seeking forgiveness for whatever has been done. And Lord, for moms and dads, I pray for courage, for diligence, and for responsibility that comes with really a capital R, that together we would take responsibility for our families, our households, the faith that is being talked about and encouraged there. Lord, we are your people. And we know that only through community can we heal. So I pray for Metro today that there would be powerful healing in the name of Jesus Christ. That you would, as you have already done, Lord, set this church on a journey to be a safe space, to acknowledge what has happened, to create safe space to talk about it, and to pray prayers of healing and power and grace and restoration. 
These things, Lord, I ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because we are covered by the shed blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's thank Pastor Megan. <laughs> Sharing that profound word with us. Church, we're going to ask you to stand at this moment. And uh, it's very, it's, this is a critical prayer for us to pray together as a church to stand in solidarity with those in our community here that have gone through abuse at whatever level they've gone through. And as we say this prayer together, I want you to know what's happening, I think, within, the, within our church is that God is really uniting us as a community to be one. This is a prayer of lament and repentance. Sunita and I are going to be reading these words, and we want you to read the words in yellow, okay? They're going to be up there, and when the words appear in yellow, that's when you declare as well and pray with us this prayer of lament and repentance, okay? Let us pray. If we can show those words. Here we go. I'm going to start. You pray the words in yellow. Merciful God, we pray on behalf of ourselves, our neighbors, the church universal, and our world, We are broken and sinful more than we would like to admit. For too long we have hidden in shame and hardened our hearts regarding sexual violence in our lives and in our society. Awaken us to the magnitude of our brokenness. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. We pray for ourselves. That we might always see one another with God's eyes. That we would reject the desire to dominate each other. But instead embrace your command to love one another. We pray for our youth and children to learn to see sexuality through God's eyes, not the lens of a broken world. Amen. We pray for survivors of sexual abuse to to look to God for protection and strength to receive justice and freedom from shame and bitterness. We pray for those who have committed acts of sexual violence. To be held accountable for their wrongdoings. We look to you, our Redeemer. Only you can make us new. Help us to weep with those who weep. Help us to walk together into your light. Come and do a mighty work in us. Transform us so that we might be made whole in you. Amen. Amen.